Welcome to Grassroots Health. My name is Tim Jordan, and I'm the host of this podcast. I welcome you. Thanks for listening. If you care about health, yours or other people's, then this podcast is for you. It's distributed monthly on the first Monday of each month. Best of all, it's free. You can find it wherever you get your podcast. Grassroots Health is sponsored by the 1795 Group. Check us out at 1795group.com. Thanks again for joining us today. Enjoy the podcast. Well, hello. Welcome to episode number eight of Grassroots Health. My name is Tim Jordan, and I'm your host. First, let me say that if there's a topic that you're interested in hearing and you're not hearing it on this podcast, please, please email me. I'd love to hear from you. I answer every email, and I'll answer yours. My email address is tjordan, J-O-R-D-A-N, at 1795group.com. Once again, just in case you miss it the first time, my email address is tjordan, that's J-O-R-D-A-N, at 1795group.com. Be sure to email me and let me know. Please contact me and tell me what you think of the podcast. Tell me if past episodes have been helpful. What additional topics or experts that you'd like to hear on this show. I'll be very, very responsive. In future episodes, I'll be addressing topics such as the rise of hate in our society, the influence of mis- and disinformation, gun violence, and it really is a gun violence epidemic in the United States. By the way, I saw on the news today we have another mass shooting, this time at, in Nashville, Tennessee. Three nine-year-old children and three adults were shot and killed. Plus, we plan to feature some environmental health topics in the future, such as microplastics and water issues. So let me know if you want to hear additional topics or experts. Second, I want to tell you that Others who know these things have told me that Grassroots Health, this podcast, is one of the fastest-growing podcasts in the United States. I believe it, but I'm biased. It's now on 11 different streaming platforms, and each new episode is streamed worldwide the first Monday of each month, including this one, which will be streamed by the first Monday in April. Not only can you find this podcast wherever people listen to their podcast. But we've made it super convenient for you. You can also find and listen to each of our episodes on our website at 1795group.com forward slash podcast forward slash. Very easy. Third, I want to tell you one more exciting thing about our website at www.1795group.com. Just today, our website specialist, Alex, built a products page for you. On the products page now are six to seven resource guides to help you. I've written them, I know. These resource guides do just that. They guide you. They provide important resources to you that you will not find anywhere else. Whether you want to know how to fund your programs, how to select a third-party consultant that's right for you, or why the 1795 Group style of strategic planning helps your organization achieve success, 
It's all there for you. It's all right there. So my goal by the end of April is to have 12 resource guides written and posted on our website that will help you. Check them out today. You can find them at 1795group.com forward slash buy forward slash B-U-I buy. Fourth and last, let me tell you about this Sunday evening. I guess it's not this, but it's coming up at the end of this month. Sunday evening, April 30th, 2023. Mark down the date. The 1795 Group has designed another virtual workshop that is very, very relevant to everyone who's still breathing, honestly. We'll be hosting a virtual workshop on caring for and communicating with patients or loved ones who are dying. You know, all of us are going to be in that situation ourselves someday if the good Lord abides and lets us have that opportunity. All of us are going to die, right? We're going to be on a deathbed sometime. We just don't know when. So please register and attend and learn. Once again, the date and time are Sunday evening, April 30th, 2023 at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. Caring for the Dying. One of the great things about our workshops is that you can attend virtually from home. It's very convenient, very comfortable. And registration is is typically only a donation of a minimum of $5. And that donation that you make goes to a vetted charity. I personally vet the charities. 100% of your donations go to the vetted charity. In this case, for this workshop, we're giving the donations to the Pulmonary Fibrosis Foundation. You may say, well, why why this foundation and not another? Well, I'll be honest. I'm a little selfish here. It's because my dad, Clyde Jordan, died of pulmonary fibrosis about five years ago. And I want to support the good work of the Pulmonary Fibrosis Foundation. I hope to see you at this workshop on Sunday night, April 30th, 2023, 6 p.m. Eastern Time. On this episode, my special guest is Dr. Amy Thompson, who's now Provost and Senior Vice President for Academic Affairs at Wright State University in Ohio. I am literally thrilled to have her on my show. You're really going to enjoy her. Our topic today is to explore this question. What are some of the unprecedented challenges facing higher education and their customers? You'll definitely want to tune in and listen to this one. Dr. Thompson oversees academic affairs at both the Wright State's campuses near Dayton, Ohio, including the undergraduate and graduate degree programs, faculty affairs. She oversees accreditation, university libraries, and research programs. Sounds like a big job to me. But she's up to it. She has more than a decade of administrative experience in higher education before joining Wright State. Provost Thompson served as a senior vice provost of academic affairs and was the acting dean of the College of Graduate Studies at the University of Toledo. That's where I work. From 2018 to 2020, 
Provost Thompson served as Utilio's Vice Provost and Associate Provost of Faculty Affairs, where she maintained effective faculty and administrative relations for over 1,100 full-time faculty and 850 part-time faculty. She joined the Toledo faculty in 2008 and was promoted to full professor of public health in 2013. She earned a PhD in health education from UToledo, along with a minor in public administration and a master of education in public health. She got her bachelor's degree in community health and health promotion with a minor in family life and human sexuality from Central Michigan University. I will say that Dr. Thompson and I had the same mentor, the same coach, and we're very proud of that. Dr. James H. Price was our mentor, and he did an excellent job. Dr. Thompson is also the current president of the Society for Public Health and Education, which just completed their annual spring conference in Atlanta, Georgia. Here she is, Provost Amy Thompson. I hope that you enjoy the podcast. Well, hello, everyone. This is Dr. Tim Jordan. I'm your host. This is episode number eight of Grassroots Health, and I'm with an old friend, Dr. Amy Thompson. Dr. Amy Thompson is now the provost, and I think you have a senior vice president title in there, Amy, as well, at Wright State University in Ohio. And she's here with us today to talk about some of the unprecedented challenges and current challenges that college and universities face, along with their constituents, their customers. So, Dr. Thompson, nice to see you. How are you? It's great to see you, Dr. Jordan. Thanks so much for having me on your podcast. So, tell us about Wright State. And I think you're near Dayton, Ohio. I think Wright State was named after the Wright brothers. Is that right? That's right. That's absolutely right. Where innovation is the the hub here, and uh, we have lots to offer at Wright State University. So yeah, this, I'm gonna give you a free plug, a free advertising for Wright State. So why would a student who's thinking about going to college, why should they think about Wright State? Well, first of all, let me say at Wright State, we are very student-centric. We have over 350 different programs, minors, and certificates that are available to students. Um, everything we do here is about student success. And so you can imagine from the minute that a student arrives on campus all the way through graduation, we do everything we can at Wright State to, to make sure that our students are supported. Um, we have first generation students here. Um, we have you know, students from all kinds of backgrounds, international students, and it really is an amazing place that our faculty are engaged in research. We have lots of engaged learning here. Uh, we're an urban university uh, in beautiful Dayton, Ohio, so I am very glad and proud to be here at Wright State. Very good. Well, thank you for that plug. What, what's the size of Wright State? How many total students do you have? We're just under 11,000 students. Okay, so it's a little smaller than where you came from. I have to confess, uh, Dr. Thompson and I used to work very closely together in our past. Um, we started the Center for Health and Successful Living 
You can still see that when you come into HHS building. It's off the, the main foyer there. And we also work closely together with Eta Sigma Gamma. For those of you who aren't familiar with Eta Sigma Gamma, that's an honor society for students in like health education or public health. So we were really close and worked lot, lots of hours together. Um, what's one thing you took away from the years at Toledo, Dr. Thompson, that maybe you're using every day in your current position? So I, I look finally back at my 14 years that I spent at the University of Toledo. And um, I, I think my most memorable work was working with you, Dr. Jordan, in our center that served cancer survivorship. And what we did there really was amazing work where we created engaged learning opportunities with lots of different students in different disciplines. So, for example, we had cancer survivors that were being served by students in physical therapy and exercise science and public health and counseling and art therapy. And we actually employed um, community health workers in our center. And we served uh, a lot of underserved cancer survivors. And that work was just incredibly satisfying to me individually as a person. Um, and as a public health professional, we were really making a difference. Um, we got grants and were able to do mobile mammography, and you could really see the, the, the inspiration and joy that we were able to bring cancer survivors who were really at different points in their survivorship journey and provide support for them when sometimes they didn't always have families that were there to, you know, hold their hand or take them to an appointment or tell them it was going to be okay. And so we were also able to publish a lot of research uh, and get our students to present. And to me, it was this just the synergy of working with our students, working with the community and really making Toledo a better place because of the work that we do. And now as a provost, you know, a lot of what I do is bringing groups of people together and students and engaging learners and developing community-based partnerships. So I, that that learning in Toledo really served me well now as a provost at Wright State. Yeah, that's very good. I agree with that. Um, just recently, we talked about, you know, what a challenge is when you have multiple grants focused on the same thing and how we used to keep track and say, okay, Saturdays for Susan G. Coleman, and Sundays for American Cancer Society. Remember, we used to have those challenges. We just it just came up in a grants workshop. But I, I agree with you, and many of them I know are still friends of yours and mine. They still remain in contact, and I even learned that some students that we had long ago are still in contact with many of those survivors. So that is really a cool thing. For those who don't know what a provost is, and that's many who are not in academia listening to this, what? What does a provost do? What's a provost? Well, well, first, Dr. Jordan, I would say don't Google provost because what comes up is that you're a jailer. And so <laughs> I, <laughs> I, I will go on record saying I am not a jailer. So let, let me just say that. But uh, a provost really is the chief academic officer uh, who oversees usually all of the college's uh, the deans, the academic programs, curriculum, accreditation. Um, so that is my primary role. I also oversee um, student success initiatives, 
um, the library, um, you know, things like ROTC, for example, anything that has to do with, you know, the curricular uh process or programs at the university. So um, that's that's typically the, the nuts and bolts of a university, if you will. Very good. Well, now our listeners know what you do every day, which is a lot. So let's roll up our sleeves, shall we, and talk about some of these unprecedented challenges that are facing higher education. One impact, I think, is the gap between the haves and the have-nots. Um, We know that most experts agree that getting a college education is probably one of the best investments a person can ever make. Um, People that have a college education are less likely to be unemployed. They're more likely to have higher income. Um, I just think, you know, over over a lifetime, that income really adds up. I think it's on average now $1.2 million more over their lifetime than a non-college graduate, that's a lot. So, you know, as they think about generational wealth and passing things down to children, uh, do you have any comments about that, Dr. Thompson, about, you know, maybe going to college, improving that ability to give generational wealth? I have a lot of thoughts, actually, on on the importance of a a college education. And, And first, I agree with you wholly that you know, if you look at the the earning capacity of someone with even an associate's degree, right, um, compared to somebody that that does not have a degree and a, a bachelor's degree and then incremental master's degree, PhD, greatly enhances their earning capacity on a yearly basis. And when you really look at it over a lifetime, is it's it's amazing. But I just want to pull back for a minute and, and talk about just, you know, beyond earning potential, there's so many other benefits to a college degree. You know, when you think about earning power, it also often means access to a better job. Mm-hmm. And and with a public health background, I, I, I feel it fair to say, you know, there's a lot of other things that come with a better high paying job. For example, access to quality health care, mm-hmm. where you live. You know, all those things can impact things like life expectancy and quality of life. And those are really important factors in, in someone's life. Um, I also want to say, you know, there's a huge benefit in having a well-rounded um, liberal education and just improving yourself and your general knowledge and the way that you you become a critical thinker and communicator um, as you go about life. And so all of those things become really, really important as you're thinking about the value that an education provides. I know that there's been a lot of conversation in the last few years of, you know, what is the value of an education? Now, certainly not everybody has to go to college. Not everybody is necessarily cut out to go to college. But we do know that there is there is a value in higher education. And, you know, there are many jobs that are out there that you cannot um, you cannot get that job if you are not highly skilled and highly educated to be able to do that. Yeah, I would agree. I think there are many benefits. Um, let's talk about closures, cost, some of those unprecedented challenges. As we know, um, you know, there are things like enrollment declines that are facing colleges and universities or things like uh, racial disparities between black and brown people and whites. We now even have more females, many more females 
going to college than males, the case of the disappearing male. We have kind of political interference that at least one party wants to get their hands in higher education and, and change it. Um, so let's talk about closures for a minute. According to my research, about 15% of the 5,860 colleges and universities, that's 5,860 colleges and universities, 15% closed since 2005. That's a lot. That's a lot of closures. Why do you think this is happening? Why do you, why do you think so many colleges and universities have closed since 2005? Do they need to close? I think there's a couple of different reasons for this. And, and we've seen especially this get exacerbated during the pandemic um, when many universities had to close down or you know, change their modality of delivery. Students dropped out. Um, there was burnout. I mean, lots of things happened specifically that exacerbated that during the pandemic. But if you look at some of the other reasons, um, we've seen some trends in enrollment in general, and, and this is referred to as the demographic cliff. Now, the demographic cliff is more pronounced in certain um, areas of the United States. For example, where we live in the Midwest, you know, Indiana, Michigan, Ohio, we really see it. And it's really going to um, become more and more pronounced around 2026, where basically you're seeing, you know, this pipeline of, of people having families have really been reduced. So you don't see the, the people having four or five, six children anymore and then going off to colleges, right? So maybe they're having one child, maybe two, maybe none. And so you're not seeing as many people graduate from high school, thus that would go on to college. So what does that mean? That means there's there's less first-time freshmen coming in into colleges. So the demographic cliff, especially in the Midwest and in certain states, is a real issue. Now, in other states, California, Texas, the South, Florida, it's not as pronounced in some of those areas because they're seeing actual growth in their populations. Um, but that is one thing that has caused some of the, the closures in some of those states that don't have the enrollment growth. The other thing I would add to that is we continue to see a push uh, for efficiencies and for financial independence from the state in many states. And so as a result of that, the state share of instruction, in, in other words, what the state is giving to universities has declined over time. And so that as a result of it has made it more fiscally challenging for some universities to operate without that state support. So do you think this trend of closing will continue or will it reverse? I think as long as we see the, the states not supporting higher education, um, I think that will continue to, to actually stress universities. Mm -hmm. I think in the states that we see with the enrollment cliff, until we see that change, or if we see the population demographics change, I think that will continue to put pressure on it. The only other thing that can contribute is if we see sometimes during recessions, et cetera, then we see people want to go back to school and retool, reskill, and upskill. Mm -hmm. 
so adult learners then sometimes come back to school, which is another population that's not just direct from high school. And so I think as we see technology change, I think as we see workforce development change, that is a real opportunity for universities to capitalize on is through that adult learner to come back to the university. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned that. I was talking to my neighbor yesterday who happens to be a assistant or an adjunct professor at UT in the math department, U Toledo. And we were talking about you. I don't know if your ears were tingling or not, but we were talking about this, some of these issues. And he says he sees it too. Um, There's just no one on campus. No one's around. Students seem stressed. And this cliff that you're talking about, this demographic cliff, will be graduating seniors out of high school as of 2025, 2026. There's just going to be less of them. And so all the colleges in the Midwest, the United States, are still competing for a, a diminished pool of kids. Uh, and as we look at the birth rates by race, we know that whites are down, know that blacks are about the same, but Asians are up and Hispanics are up. And so maybe, as you said, um, people like in colleges in Texas, California, and so forth, may not be affected as much as the Midwest. Let's, let's talk about cost for a few minutes, college cost. Um, I'm a graduate of Bowling Green State University, um, proud class of 1981. Um, that's how far back I go. But I remember the costs were high, but I didn't want my mom and dad to pay anything. Um, I wanted to pay, and so I, went to, I got a job at the old Lion store downtown, uh, went out to North, I forget, the, out in North Toledo, it was called North Town Square. I worked 24 hours a week, paid my own tuition, saved everything I could, paid all my own tuition. My parents did help me with books, but I graduated without any debt. I had zero debt. And today, according to my research, nearly 60% of students who seek a bachelor's degree now have student loan debt. And 14% of them have more than $40,000 debt. We've, we've no students we've talked to. Like, how much did he have? $80,000, $90,000. I know a student who went to Bluffton University, south of Toledo. She graduated with over $100,000 in debt. So what's changed since 1980, 1981, when I could pay for it with a 25-hour-a-week job, which now causes many students to take out loans, in your opinion. What's changed? Great question. And I think there's a couple of factors that have contributed to this. First of all, we've seen um, a decline in what the family contribution is to the education of incoming college students. And, you know, I can say myself, I was very fortunate when I went to college, you know, back in the, the 90s, that my family was for you know could could afford to pay for my college, and so I I was able to not have to work, and be able to focus on my studies. Now the landscape has very much changed, where families you know because of the in, inflating costs of higher education, and a lot of this I I believe is also linked to the changes in in state share of instruction and that being reduced. And so we've seen some increases in the cost of tuition. And then we've also seen a decrease in what families can contribute to help students 
And so as a result now, they have to borrow more and they have to actually work a couple of different jobs to be able to afford to go to college. And so, you know, it's a very different landscape now where, you know, most students can't just go to school and not work. Many of them are juggling lots of different responsibilities now um, compared to where you and I went to college. Yeah, I remember, you know, working at the retail store and getting off and, you know, usually getting a hamburger somewhere on the way through a drive-thru and going to class and or driving back and being back by two or three o'clock and going to work and, and being able to pay for that. But now it doesn't seem possible for students to pay and they're always working. In fact, in my research, it found that 64%, there's been a 64% cost increase since 2000. Um, it costs attending a four-year college like Wright State, Bowling Green State, University of Toledo, cost 64% more than it did just in 2000. So again, why do you think that is? What, what, what's contributed to that cost increase? Is it professors making too much money? Um, well, you know, what is it? You know, I would go back again and, and, and look at things like inflation, right? Everything costs more now. Um, so we, we see that, you know, as, as salaries increase with inflation, we know that, you know, um, research and facilities, cost of, of living increases, everything's more expensive now than it was 20 years ago. But again, we've also seen changes in what many states are willing to contribute to offset the operational costs of higher education. And so somehow you have to make that delta up. And so often then we see where there's a difference in tuition. Yeah, I, I was reading, you know, I always research for these podcasts and experts say that in their opinion, tuition costs have gone up from 20, 30 years for a variety of reasons. One is state funding cuts, as you talked about. Um, you know, the state of Ohio, I think we're near the bottom, actually, of 50 states. Uh, and we see that more of states that have Republican-controlled legislatures. I'm sorry, just going to call it like it is. Um, we also have number two, experts say, expanding administrative and legal staff costs. Uh, I've seen that, as you have in my time. This is my 22nd year at the University of Toledo. When I started there weren't a lot of attorneys employed by the University of Toledo. Now there's six of them employed by the University of Toledo. Um, and increased construction, number three, increased construction and facility costs. So what's happening is universities have built these grand buildings, these student centers, student rec centers, and then the pandemic hit. And now we don't see students using those centers and a lot of those residence halls are being closed. Um, what do you think the answer is in the future, Dr. Thompson? Should we knock down or close those buildings and get rid of them or make them into something else? Or do you think that online education is here to stay and people don't want to come on campus? What are you seeing there at Wright State? You know, that's a that's a great question. And, and we're looking at ways at Wright State to utilize our footprint uh, more efficiently. Um, so, for example, where we are, we're right adjacent and proud to be adjacent to Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. And so one of the things we're, we've done recently was to develop an MOU with them 
to allow their researchers to come onto our campus, utilize our space, our buildings, and to, and to basically um, collaborate on research. Um, there's other um, entities in the Dayton area that we've also allowed to come on our campus that can um, take interns, for example, and they rent and use some of our building space. Um, I, you know, there's different ways we can utilize our campus footprint in ways that can still benefit student learning and can even possibly be enhanced revenue streams. So I think everyone, um, unless they're busting at the seams um, and, and perhaps like a flagship institution, can look at ways to do that where students could have opportunities to, to work in industry on campus, to work in research labs, um, et cetera, and it can be a benefit for the institution. Bright State, it sounds like you got some good things going on there with renting space, people coming in from Wright Patterson Air Force Base. I don't know that we're doing that. I know that up north in Detroit, Wayne State is doing some things for black and brown people. And they're much more creative than what University of Toledo is. And I'm sorry to say. So let's talk about black and brown people for a minute. Um, when we look at full professors at the any university across the country, full professor is the highest rank that we can reach. Uh, I think there are two full professors, maybe three in our current department. In our whole college, I think there may be four. Um, so we look at full professors, the highest rank, only 5% across the country are black and brown people. You heard that right, only 5%. Why do you think that percentage is so low? Yeah, that, that's a very disturbing statistic. And you know, I, I think we need to do much more to be able to create pipelines that we have um, black and brown people you know, going to college and seeking, being successful and seeking degrees and graduate degrees, getting their doctorates and going back into higher education. As we look at um, who our students are, and then we turn around and we look at our faculty, you know, we need to try to have faculty that look like our students, right? That they can connect with and have mentors. And so um, I think your question is important, but it, it starts back as many of those um, would-be professors are students and looking at equity gaps. And so we look at things like four-year, five-year, six-year graduation rates, and we see pronounced differences in the graduation rates, sometimes even DFW rates in those courses. And I think it kind of goes back to even um, looking at their high school preparation. You know, in, in some of those instances, students are coming from schools that are underfunded on tax dollars, and they're starting way before the start line, if you will. Um, they're coming from places that don't have enough books, that don't have enough teachers, that, you know, often aren't funded well. And so when they come to college, they may be well behind other students who had better preparation, who maybe had access to better things. And so, you know, the, the challenge becomes is how do you remediate? How do you prepare them to be successful in an environment that might be two or three steps above where they are coming in at? And I think one of the things we do a good job at at Wright State is finding out how to meet our students where they are. 
and whether we have to do co-requisites or remediation with our students, we are laser focused at trying to make sure that those students are successful. Maybe they need tutoring, you know, maybe they need, you know, advisors, success coaches, whatever that be. But the fact is what you're saying is there are equity gaps. And it often starts in, you know, back in high school and middle school and even elementary. But the other thing I think is important too is that folks that, you know, are in higher education, that are black and brown, that, you know, that we tap them to be mentors and to really help other students see, yes, someday you can be a full professor. Yes, you can be a teacher. You can be in higher education and encouraging them to seek out those fields, especially in STEM, where we know that there's even less black and brown um, individuals that are um, in that are a faculty. And for those of you who are listening who don't know what STEM is, S-T-E-M, Stands for Dr. Thompson. It's really the 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 sciences, the the technology, the engineering, the math, and math. That's right. It's it's science, technology, engineering, and math STEM. And we don't we don't have very many black and brown people in there. Uh, it reminds me of a story. You remember a, a doctoral student we had? I will mention his name. He'll become famous again because I told this story before. His name is Kelvin. And Calvin was teaching for me. He was uh, team teaching with me. I was teaching him to teach death and dying. And he was attracting a lot of African-American, black American football players. And Calvin came to me one day and said, um, Dr. Jordan, could you take my class? I've got an appointment somewhere. So I took his class. I walked in. There are six or seven black American football players. I go, who are you? <laughs> I said, I'm, I'm Dr. Jordan. Oh, man, we got to put up with you. <laughs> I said, yeah, I taught Calvin everything he knows, but, you know, you're going to have to put up with me. I'm sorry. But it was, you, you make a good point in that they were attracted to Calvin's section of death and dying because he looked like them. He could understand them. He knew their culture. I didn't. And so we need to do a better job of that. Um, I think you're right. It goes back. All the way back to high schools, maybe we get a lot of students at the University of Toledo from Cleveland high schools, um, Chicago high schools. They, they don't seem to be quite as prepared as well. Um, I remember one student came to me who's now a, a practicing PA, and he was in my methods and materials class and had never used a date book. He didn't know what a date book was. So I bought him a date book and taught him how to use it. And now he's a practicing PA. He just needed a little bit of help, a little bit of extra touch. So maybe it goes all the way back to third grade because we know that third grade reading level is really predictive of who makes it in college and who doesn't. Let's talk about President Biden's plan for a minute, shall we? He... Um, he has a loan forgiveness plan for students out there. It's in the U.S. Supreme Court. I think it's supposed to be decided maybe in a couple of weeks or a month. But there's some senators that may throw it. I just got a news brief across my desk. It said that Republican senators Bill Cassidy of Louisiana, Joni Ernst of Iowa, John Cornyn of Texas are planning to introduce a resolution next week to overturn President Biden's debt relief program. Um, they may actually overturn it. So let's take a look at what, what he's talking about here. According to my research, 
He is not saying anyone of high income is eligible. Is that your understanding of it as well? Yes. So if you make less, you have to make less than $125,000. I mean, that's that's pretty good income, but that's still, you're not eligible if you make more than that. His plan is, here's the details, the Department of Education will provide up to $20,000 in debt cancellation to Pell Grant recipients, that's a federal grant, and $10,000 in debt cancellation to non-Pell Grant recipients. And borrowers are eligible for this relief if their individual income, again, is less than $125,000. No high-income individuals or high-income households in the top 5% are eligible. What do you think of his plan? I just want to know what your opinion is. Yeah, great question. You know, debt forgiveness is not a new concept, right? Um, Right. When you look at, they already have um, public loan forgiveness programs for individuals that work, for example, at nonprofit organizations who are teachers, um, you, you know, that work at health departments, for examples, universities, et cetera. So this isn't a new concept. If you have years, certain years of service, there's loan forgiveness. So I, I want to start out by saying this is not a new thing. Um, what the difference is with this is that this is really contingent on income. And um, let me just say that I think that we have to address this issue in one way or another because, you know, with, with the debt levels that some students are coming out with, they're very exorbitant, right? And obviously some fields are, are higher than others. Um, I know that, you know, any responsible university is doing lots of consulting and, and, um, you know, talking with students about not taking out more loans than what they're needed. But at any point when you're done, you still have, you know, a a period of time to pay this off. And with somebody just getting a job, it, it can be a lot for them. And so, you know, some states have actually moved to free college for institutions a lot of those are based on, um, I, I know Tennessee has this, I believe North Carolina has this, where they'll refer to it as like the, the Tennessee promise or the North Carolina, I think, promise, where um, as long as you um, were born there or live there, that you know a certain portion of community college school is free, right? And I, I think it's great when the state wants to support higher education. And I think Going back to our original conversation, I think that that's where the the conversation really becomes relevant is how can state legislatures, how can um, the states support the universities in being able to provide affordable education for students? And the point that they're having to take out loans because of the fact that, you know, they're not being subsidized to the point where they used to be. And, and so I, I might take this from a little bit of a different approach that I think this is a more holistic discussion of, you know, how state share of instruction has been decreased over time that has actually caused, um, you know, I, I think a lot of the universities to have to find ways to cover those costs. Yeah, a lot of the big thinkers in this area, and I don't consider myself a big thinker, I, I'm a good reader and a good researcher, but... They say things like, um, you know, we're stuck in the past in academia. 
Uh, for instance, we might say you come into the university, you're going to major, major in public health. And so you, maybe you have to do 115 credit hours. And we say this class, this class, this class, this class, these are all required. Who says that? Well, that's a faculty decision and chair decision. And these are electives. Who says that? So I think the big thinkers are saying what students want today is what they get on their cell phones. <clears throat> what they get from YouTube or you know any of the video games or things that they watch. It's, it's selection. It's the power of selection. I mean, you know yourself when you're going through the remote, click, 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 click. You watch what you want when you want it. And so big thinkers are saying colleges need to change from that type of education where we say, well, you got to do 115 credit hours because we said. And employers are saying, all I want is somebody who can really do Excel, do it well. And so the big thinkers are saying these micro credits, these micro little awards, these micro trainings are where it's at because students are going to want them when they want them, wherever they want them, right? Uh, if they're on the road, they want to be able to tune into their college, get the training that they need, and go to their employer and say, okay, I'm now trained in Microsoft Excel or whatever it is. Your thoughts on micro-training? Well, actually, I'm proud to say that uh, Wright State just uh, passed a process to allow us to do some micro-credentials, and uh, we'll have two that will be ready to go in fall. And I actually think that this is a fabulous way um, to help, again, that, that upskilling, reskilling. Um, you know, a lot of students want badging, things that they can put on their mm -hmm. LinkedIn or social media that can show that they're proficient in a particular skill. Um, I think they're a great thing. And I'm really glad that we're pursuing um, the availability of those here at Wright State. Um, I also think... I think universities have a responsibility to be responsive and and ethical in the way that we're trying to reduce um, the cost of instruction, right? And we, we are doing all of those things. You know, we're looking for efficiencies. Um, in Ohio, for example, there was um, encouragement to, to lower most degree programs to be 120 credit hours, which means that um, that most students should be able to complete a degree if they go full-time in four years, right? So that I think that's a good thing because we're, we're trying to be mindful of when a student comes in to get them done so that they're not taking, you know, tons and tons of extra credits that they don't need, right? The other thing um, I know at Wright State that we're doing is, is trying to create accelerated programs. We have a three-year nursing program that they can get their bachelor's degree in three years. So, you know, mm. students, they want to come in, get their degree, get out, get a job. And so I think universities have to be responsive to those kinds of things. The other thing I think the pandemic has taught us is sometimes college and university studies can be overwhelming to students. And so I think the micro-credential, I think stackable certificates, biting off university studies in smaller increments where you can have a certificate and then a certificate and then, you know, and then leading up to an associate's and then, you know, getting your, your bachelor's or, you know, two certificates equal a master's degree. You know, those kinds of things are not as overwhelming sometimes for students 
And, and our students today have a tremendous amount of responsibilities. They have a lot of work, family obligations. Um, you know, we have to be responsive to those kinds of things. I know at Wright State, for example, we just entered into what we call year-long registration, where now students can come in and register for an entire year at one time so that they can plan their lives, right? Not just one semester at a time, but they have to plan their work, their kids' daycare, you know, um, um, schedules, their family. I mean, people have a lot of responsibilities now. And so we have to look at how we can be more student-centric and also try to look at ways that we can cut costs with things like textbooks, fees, all of those things to make sure that we're we're not um, having our students incur more debt than what they need to. Yeah, that's very good. I, I think for the first time in history, we may be having families, parents, and their children, college-age children, question the value of a college education, the price of it. I think that's why we're seeing some decline in people not enrolling. They're questioning, like, what is this really going to give me anyway? Because we, as we know, we have a lot of students who graduate and then can't find jobs. They can't find jobs like a psychology major, undergraduate degree. What does that do? What are you going to do with that? And so I keep advising students not to have those kind of degrees, you know, that you can't do anything with. But I think that's a college challenge that colleges also should provide better advising and say, you know, you can't do much with a psychology undergraduate degree. You just can't. And you got a 2.7, you're probably not going to get into grad school, right? You got a cumulative 2.7. I want to close if you, and by the way, if you're just tuning in, you're listening to Dr. Amy Thompson. She's our guest today. Dr. Thompson is the provost and senior vice president at Wright State University in Dayton, Ohio. And we're going down the home stretch now. So let me ask you this question, Dr. Thompson. We talked about racial disparities. Let's talk about gender disparities, because in my research, I found out that after World War II, that men, I didn't know this before, men outnumbered women, female students, two to one. Did you know that? That would have been probably in the 19, late 1940s, early 1950s, two to one men, and now it's completely reversed when we look at our college's Especially in my program, I, I have mostly females in every class. I'm lucky to get a guy. So why do you think that's happened? Why do you think there's so few men, the vanishing men? <laughs> Great question. I, I can only speculate, but, um, you, you know, I think a lot of um, potential university males are choosing to go into the trades, Um you know, are choosing to get a job right after high school and not go to the university. Um, they may, you know, delay um, going to college. And so I think we're seeing more women go directly into the university. And I think that that perhaps is causing that disparity that we're seeing in gender right now. Mm, that's interesting. Yeah, there are a couple of experts I've read that said college definitely helps women more than men, because men can go out and still get a good job. It, you know, doesn't take a college degree where a woman, you know, she may end up working at a grocery store at Meyer or something like that. It doesn't pay very good and doesn't have good benefits or 
maybe a Walmart. But she gets a college degree. She's going to be advanced. And so I think I think you're right on there. Well, it has been really a pleasure to talk to you about some of these unprecedented challenges facing higher education. Uh, we're going to give the last word to you. Anything that you'd like to say, Dr. Thompson, about Wright State or about higher education? You know, Dr. Jordan, I would just go back to the fact that I, I really do believe that there is an incredible value in a college degree and spending time at a university. It helps, um, you know, really um, improve earning potential and really does, I, you know, help um, provide individuals become more well-rounded in their thinking and and their skill set. And uh, of course, I will always put a plug in there for Wright State University and uh, the student-centeredness that our university has, but uh, always will uh, say that, you know, going and pursuing a university degree is a, a fabulous and fantastic choice. Yeah, I agree. Um, any advice you have, let's, let's talk about students at different levels. Any advice you have for undergraduate students yeah, I, I think my biggest advice was, you know, college is really what you make of it and how involved you get, um, you know, study, go to class, get to know your professors, get engaged, get involved, join organizations, find a mentor, all of those things become really, really important. And, you know, I will say I was just at a conference this last week. Uh, with my undergraduate advisor of 30 years ago. And those relationships really do matter. So um, get to know your professors. And what advice would you have for doctoral students who are maybe struggling a little bit? Maybe they're in that dissertation phase. You know how that is. It feels like it's lasting forever. What advice would you have for them? Yeah, I think especially recognizing that, you know, when you enter into a PhD program, it's not a sprint, it's a marathon sometimes, or at least it feels like that. And, you know, this really is an investment in yourself and, you know, getting to know your faculty member, you're working together with them, ideally. Um, research is, is key. This is a research degree. And so trying to get as much exposure to research, to teaching, um, is really important as you're thinking about especially entering a university and becoming perhaps a researcher or a faculty member, um, you know, trying to get publications before you ever leave uh, and graduate uh, to make yourself a marketable faculty member are really, really important. Joining professional associations, even as a student, going to conferences, uh, all of those things are really important in preparing you to, to be that next generation of faculty member or researcher. Well, thank you, Dr. Thompson. That is great advice. I agree. We have been listening to Dr. Amy Thompson, the provost of Wright State University, and she's also senior vice president there. Um, she recently transplanted from Toledo, University of Toledo, where she was uh, assistant vice provost or something like that. And uh, at one time, she was a just a plain public health professor like me. So uh, she is uh, doing a great job at Wright State, I know, because I hear and I check in with people and from there, and they say that they love you. So keep up the good work, and thank you for appearing on Grassroots Health today. Thank you, Dr. Jordan. Appreciate it. The 1795 Group is very happy to tell you about Andy Slavitt's In the Bubble podcast, produced and distributed by Lemonada Media. 
You know, every day it seems like the world is on the brink of a crisis. There are just so many serious issues. But you can join Andy Slavitt and various experts on his podcast to make sense of it all. Andy's been called the outsider's insider for a reason. I personally believe he knows everyone. As a former White House advisor, author, crisis response leader, Andy simply finds the right helpers to get us moving forward together, smarter and calmer. Get in the bubble today. In the Bubble podcast is available every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, wherever you get your podcasts.